Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dewalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. We'll welcome everybody to season two, episode 10 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. And this is gonna be a different episode today. I am really excited about this one because I'm bringing somebody else behind the microphone with me and it's not the little man with the big mic, DeWalker Sinha. I'm gonna be joined today by a friend of ours named Dr. Vivek Solanki. And you are going to be amazed at his personal journey from traveling periodontist to partner to exit in all of about 16 months. He's one of the uh, clients that we worked with last year in 2021 uh, in a sell-side representation context, and his story is gonna blow your mind. This is gonna be a ton of fun. I don't know if it's a note-taking episode, but I would say get your popcorn ready. Brew another cup of that wonderful meal of coffee, grab a Coke, a bottle of water, whatever you need, and buckle up for a wonderful ride. The Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everybody to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Perrin Desports. And as I teased in the introduction, I've got a friend of ours behind the microphone with me today, and it's not DeWalker Sinha. It's Dr. Vivek Solanke. Dr. Solanke, welcome to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. Hey, Baron. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, it is my pleasure. Believe me, my friend. And for the audience, just to show you our dedication to bringing you the best possible content, we're recording this on a Sunday morning. And in the California time zone where Dr. Solanke is, it's a little bit after 8 a.m. So I got him up early, gave him a couple of cups of coffee, juiced him up real good. And he's going to tell you a fantastic tour de force story today. This is going to be a ton of fun. I really, really appreciate you joining me today, Vivek. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hope your uh, audience finds it uh, helpful and uh, I'm happy to do this. Well, if they don't find it helpful, I'll just say it's worth what we're charging them, if you know what I mean. So <laughs> I, I've never had to fire an audience member over a podcast, but there's always an opportunity for that. So I, I think the place to start is for for me to say, like I said in the uh, in the introduction, that um, uh, Dr. Solanke and his partner um, were sell-side clients of uh, Polaris in 2021. Um, we've known Vivek for uh, quite a while now, and his story is is one that's um, frankly not like one I've really seen before or even heard of. And I, I'd like, Vivek, for you maybe to just, let's take the story from the top, okay? You're in the California market you're a mm -hmm. traveling periodontist that bought into a practice that happened during COVID. Like, what is this all about? What does it mean to be a traveling periodontist? And then let's talk about the, the practice and the buy-in a little bit. 
Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so I finished residency in 2016 at the VA Perio program in Los Angeles. And mo- most uh, VA grads, or I guess most, most periodontists in, in these larger cities, either affiliate with group practices or, you know, they will travel with their equipment into the GP office or the multi-specialty office as an independent contractor and provide services, you know, bi-monthly or, you know, even sometimes weekly if the office is busy enough. And I guess that's where that that name, you know, the traveling periodontist, the traveling surgeon or the, the traveling oral surgeon, I think that's where that, that name kind of came from. And so it's very common with the younger the younger population that these specialists, when they get out, you know, instead of going and buying solo specialty practices, they affiliate with either groups, uh, large corporations or uh, GP practices, and, and they'll, you know, provide services as an independent contractor. And that's what I did um, in the beginning. I did that from 2016 to about 2019. Okay, so you're um, you're you're a, a wandering nomad out there <laughs> with a unique set of skills, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, while uh, you know while you're young, I'm sure that can be pretty rewarding and and kind of thrilling. I mean, it's 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 a life of experience as a as a super. Uh, specialist type of a resource. I mean, it's it's a really interesting juxtaposition of that. We could probably record an entire podcast on that type of a, a mindset. But you know, as you roll through 2019 and into 2020, you start bumping into a, an opportunity to 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 buy into a practice. Um, and I'd love to just kind of dig in as that mindset shifts from being you know uh, on the road to saying this is a a practice that um, I see some untapped potential in and and couple that with the fact that we're talking about, you know, COVID hits at the inception of that too. So this is a, this is an interesting whirlwind here. Yeah. To, you know, towards the end of 2018, 2019, I started taking some, you know, business courses in dentistry, like understanding EBITDA, the KPIs, what drives a dental practice, you know, how, how a practice grows. And it was really interesting uh, for me. You know, I, I started researching that a little bit more than I started researching like the clinical part of dentistry. Uh, surgery was still fun, but I found like a new, new hobby, I guess if you would say, uh, like learning the business side and, and scaling and growing practices. Um, I had a colleague, uh, her father owned a very large practice in LA. And um, towards the end of 2019, I started talking with him about, um, you know, his practice. He had retired from clinical dentistry three years prior to that time. And, you know, the practice was just kind of driving itself. There were a few associates there, uh, but he wasn't, uh, you know, he had, finished his clinical career and, you know, he's, he's retired. And so during 2020 COVID hit and I decided that, you know, I would like to take a stab at it and let's, you know, buy, let me back, you know, become a partner of this practice and, uh, you know, let's grow this practice together. 
you know, over the next five to seven years and, and create a nice, large multi-specialty practice that doesn't have to have patients go anywhere else. Everyone can be treated under one roof. So I've got to be honest with you. Um, we talk about strategy a lot with our audience and mm -hmm. no one in their right mind would say that you're going to buy into a practice in the middle of COVID that's for all intents and purposes shut down. Banks aren't lending and the owner of the practice retired three years ago. I mean, that's a little bit insane if I'm being honest with you. You know, it was a different, uh, yeah, it was a different situation. Um, but I think, you know, being a periodontist that traveled to different offices, I, I got a chance to see some really well-functioning offices, you know, systems that were in place. I saw some similarities between some of the corporate practices and some private multi-specialty practices. And um, I saw a lot of opportunity in this practice. And then being COVID, like you had mentioned, uh, banks weren't readily uh, lending at that time. I think this was, you know, March, April, May, around that time, like COVID had just hit and LA was shut down. So um, my partner, you know, the, he, at that time, he'd owned 100% of the practice. Um, I approached him about, you know, a plan to grow. Uh, and in him knowing that this was my, you know, my first one doing it to, you know, with him, uh, he, he was really kind enough and we were able to set up the, a seller finance uh, buy-in because, you know, we didn't have many options because of what was going on in COVID. And that's when the project officially started was of July 1, 2020. And uh, we, we formed a partnership, recredentialed and just hit the ground running from there. Wow. I mean, so <clears throat> what a, you know, what, what an unbelievable opportunity for, for both of you at a point where seemingly everybody is uh, ducking for cover, right? And putting their heads in the sand and, you know, is this the, the end of the world coming? And both of you saw opportunities in, in one another. He had the playing field to play on. You had the expertise and the uh, for lack of a better term, the the education from having seen success in different areas where y'all could create the the one plus one equals three in this practice. And I mean, that's you want to talk about a testament to two people who share the same mindset and are and are focused on the same outcome. Um, it, it's under the circumstances, it, it's quite remarkable. Uh, I, I give you both a ton of credit for that. So let let's talk about. Um, you know, your impact on that practice. I mean, obviously now you're going to uh, make an investment in it. You're going to become a partner in it. You've got um, the uh, varied expertise and having, uh, you can sort of cherry pick from what you've seen working in other practices. Let's talk sure. about the impact that you made on it um, in, in pretty short order. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I got in there originally, I, I guess, um, you know, let's just say true EBITDA was around like, you know, 80, 80,000. And, you know, there's a lot of room for, for growth. Um, the practice had a couple of associates, you know, one oral surgeon that came in, I mean, once or twice a month, but, um, you know, periodontists, I feel are, you know, probably most passionate in dentistry about periodontal disease. And I, and I think periodontal disease is a 
is a pretty large, uh, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty large in the population, you know, more than half the US population has it. And a lot of our treatment, you know, when we used to travel and current travelers is focused on, you know, minimizing the amount of disease that's left in, in, in the practice. So, you know, the first thing that we did was really just focus on, on the strong systems, you know, how, how many people do we have at the front desk? You know, how do we improve customer service? You know, do we recredentialed uh, with the new tax ID and we were able to increase um, some of the contracts that we had with, with some of the PPO insurances and then really then focusing on the providers in the practice. I think that's where most of the, the growth really came from is just, you know, whenever somebody new comes in, it's always, yeah, what is, you know, what are they going to promise? What are they going to do? But, you know, getting the team behind the, the mission of, of creating like just a really nice practice that they would want to be, they, they would want to be treated at. Um, and then it took some time to, to get there. You know, I'd say um, over the next six months, we changed a lot of systems and from July to December. December was when we really, when I really had that aha moment, which is like, okay, you know, this is working. You know, we, we more than doubled the collections in the practice by December. And, um, and, you know, the morale had improved at that time. We had added two more associates into the practice and, uh, and also brought in another periodontist at that time to help on the clinical side of things and, and also mentor and teach the younger docs so that I could continue to focus on what needed to be done to, to continue to grow the practice. And that, uh, that journey went from December uh, until the next December. So about 16 months later, when, when, you know, we approached uh, uh, Polaris to, to help with uh, bring another partner in. So it was about a 16 month journey from, from that time. Wow. You know, there's um, uh, one of the things I want to impress upon our audience um, is that there's a there's an old adage in sports. Um, and I try not to relate too much of what we do to, to sports analogies. But one of them uh, is that the best teams don't win um, always through superior recruiting. They, they win through superior coaching. You got to have both, um, but certainly a coach that uh, understands their um, the, the people who work with them and work for them at a fundamental level, what makes them successful uh, and and how to get more out of that player than they could get out of themselves is an incredibly important facet of human capital development. And what you let off saying um, about you know, you came into the practice, um, you, you took a look at the, the people first, some of the systems and processes, um, probably uh, taught them a little bit differently about how to approach patients in terms of standards of care and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. It's really, uh, if you think about it, it's kind of like a bottoms up versus a top down approach, I guess, is what I'm driving. Mm -hmm. at. And, and I think sure. that there are too many people that miss that all too often. So um, remarkable, really, really yeah. remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun parent, you know, I mean, you know, going in and just having the, um, you know, the ability to say, you know, this, 
this place looks old. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's, let's, let's change the floors, you know, let's just rip out the floors and, and, you know, how long has this stuff been here? It's been here for 30 years. Great. Let's just throw it away. We don't need it. Um, you know, really just being able to have uh, full control over everything that needed to be done, uh, making things more efficient, putting systems in. And, and, and then it became fun for everybody. You know, it's just like coming to work was fun. And, you know, the, the case acceptance was starting to go through the roof. We, we had to get more hygienists in there. We had to get more doctors in there. And uh, it was an interesting, really interesting time. I mean, it feel, feels like it went by really quick. You know, I, I think the other thing as I'm listening to you talk um, is that you uh, you mentioned before and we talked about you had the experience of being able to, to kind of, I use the phrase cherry pick from what you had seen was successful in other businesses and everything like that. But you kind of came in from the outside, uh, evaluated the team, the systems, uh, the environment, everything like that. And, and made changes, we, we call this securing early wins in change management. If you're going to change a lot of stuff, you want to make sure that the things you change produce quantifiable impact and improve mm-hmm. morale to the degree that you said. And, and I think that's, uh, that's critically important. And I, I think you had the opportunity to do that as an outsider coming in. Sometimes our clients... Um, when it comes to changing their own businesses to create more impact, suffer from that, um, you know, lack of inertia, for lack of a better term. They've been the business owner for a long time, and it's tough to create change in the environment that you've existed in for a long time. But I think it's really important, at least on an annual basis, for people to take a step back and for all intents and purposes, a white sheet of paper on their business to say, if I've if I were coming into this business tomorrow and hadn't been the owner for the last decade, what, what would I do? What could I do? Where are some of the areas of low hanging fruit? And that, that constant sort of reinvention is critically important. Um, so really, really interesting to hear you talk about that. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this, um, originally when you started down this path, um, I, I think your, I don't know about intent, but your outlook, let's say, was uh, probably a longer term type of a, a oh, look sure. to things. Um, sure. It played out pretty quickly. Do you want to do you want to yeah. kind of talk through that for our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, originally when I, I went into this project, you know, I was planning for this to be around a seven year project you know um i factored in you know my my partner you know was out of the uh, clinical practice but he was also becoming excited about you know running his practice and i and i see this um i see this with with a lot of different dental practice owners is you you have practice owners who are full-time in the chair and they're also like managing and running one, two, three locations. And I tapered down through surgery. And I was doing surgery maybe in the beginning, five days a week. You know, it, I treated it like a, I just did a startup. Like, oh, this person needs surgery. Great. I'm doing it now. Or, you know, we have a chance for an all on four. Awesome. Let's do it next week. But, you know, I couldn't 
the more I got involved clinically, the less time that was being spent uh, running the practice. Like, you know, who's going to fix these systems? And there's a problem with, uh, you know, revenue management. There's a problem with the way that we're, um, you know, doing treatment plans with the way that the insurance were, were credentialed. So I, I needed to have support, you know, and, and, you know, bringing in other periodontists to help mentor and train and give them wins and let them um, experience, you know, you know, income outside of residency and, and learning to become more efficient was part of the success uh, and, and the big picture success. So originally, like, like you mentioned, this was a, about a seven year plan, you know, which was like, you know, let's grow this practice for the next seven years and let's see how far we can grow this in, into a multi-specialty practice. But then around, you know, April, um, you know, we, we, let's see, March was a really big milestone for the, the practice. I think the practice statistically did, you know, between like 120, 130 in, in collections statistically over the last, you know, five years. Uh, but March of 2021 was when, um, you know, was a really big milestone for the practice. We, we passed like 325 in collections that month. And uh, we're like, you know, this is amazing. You know, how did it grow so quickly? And then, you know, I started thinking about this next level of growth. And, you know, we got to a certain point, but now in order to continue to grow at the, you know, the pace that we were, it, it needed more support. And then also, you know, the economic changes were happening with the Biden's tax proposals. Um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. We were still in the middle of COVID, uh, getting out of COVID, going back into COVID. Um, so in April, May is when I started thinking about, you know, bringing in another partner. Um, I guess many people would describe it as an exit. You know, I still am an equity owner in the practice, but um, that exit, which, which people describe, uh, we did bring in another partner. And, and in December, we closed. Um, and we have another partner. It is a DSO that's on board. And so this seven-year plan became a 16-month journey, uh, which, which took uh, the practice from 80,000 in, in EBITDA to around 600,000 in EBITDA. Wow. Unbelievable. I mean, what, what an impact and, and you know, what, a, what an amazing, what an amazing journey in, in pretty short order. I mean, that's, uh, that's incredible. 16 months. Um, so let's, uh, so let's kind of go back to the, um, the point where, you know, you, you think, okay, there, there's things happening at a, happening at a macroeconomic level. We've got a, the political upheaval and, you know, sure. potential impacts there. Um, your impact on the business, uh, was quantifiable and, you know, all but instantaneous, um, you know, there, and, and you make the decision that, okay, probably, probably finding a safer Harbor, you know, a bigger boat to be part of and, and hitching our, our practice to a, a bigger entity is this is the right time sure. to do it and all that, you know, can you talk us and our audience through sort of the way you thought about, 
uh, that process and using an advisor versus going it alone. I mean, there are a lot of people out there that, that, you know, say, well, I know everything about the practice. I've, I've built the business. Um, I don't want to pay an advisor. I'm just going to, I'm going to negotiate my own transaction. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I originally thought, you know, it's to some degree, like, Hey, you know, I jumped into this practice and figured it out. You know, why couldn't I do the same in the <laughs> M and A space? Um, but I, you know, I did some research. Uh, I talked to some colleagues that had also, you know, uh, exited and, and, uh, partnered in, in really large, um, large transactions on their multi-specialty practices. And, you know, it, it boiled down to, you know, we all anticipate tax changes were going to take place. And I'm, you know, kind of a firm believer of you, you, you don't know what you don't know, you know, and, and so going into this space, it was not something that people had a lot of time to, to make, you know, a deal happen. And, and the DSOs, they, they do this probably what, 60 to 80 times a year on, on so many large practices. Yeah. And not I'm, ever gone through one myself. You know, I figured that it was not wise to, to go into that space without, you know, without guidance. You know, I, I wanted to learn, obviously I really wanted to learn the M&A side, but having the guidance throughout the whole process was just priceless. And I, I just can't, um, I can't recommend enough if, if people are thinking about partnering in the DSO space, there's just so much that the local level and private practice owners don't know about PE backed uh, institutions and, you know, how to structure the deals so that it's, you know, fair for everybody uh, because they moved, they moved quite fast when we started. Yeah, there's a there's another old adage in the world of M&A that says um, you can set the price if I can set the structure. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think the you hate to say the the devil's in the details, but it, it really is. I mean, sure. <laughs> um, sure. it's it's not just a, about the price. It's certainly about the quality of the buyer, the structure of the transaction. And and there's a lot more to it. Um, you know, why don't we, why don't we dig into that just a little bit without, we're not going to talk specifics here, obviously, or or disclose any confidential information, but, you know, let's talk about a little bit of the process, um, in in terms of working with Polaris. And then also from a personal level, how you thought about what you wanted, um, you know, post-sale as well as from a transactional context and everything. Cause I think that's really important for people to, to think about before they start down the road of, of the process itself. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I guess when I originally started the, the process, you know, I thought, you know, this was a, a transactional thing. It was a, uh, here it's practices for sale. We have the option of holding equity and, and it's, uh, you know, here's the cash up front or maybe some equity that's, that's held back. And I didn't quite understand why one entity may go a certain route and then why another entity, though both in the same space, would go a completely different way. And then the third, you know, factor in there was what kind of structure uh, is it that 
I want or my partner wants. You know, we are both in different spaces with our timelines as well. He had retired from clinical dentistry and was finding this, you know, practice life, uh, running a practice like quite fun, but also want to be respectful of him and being able to fully retire if that's something he wanted. And then myself, you know, what what type of structure is the DSO going to allow for me and, and what's important to me, um, you know, still being attached to this project and helping it grow, but also having the flexibility and the freedom to continue to pursue my, my own ambitions. And so that's what, what a lot of the thoughts were in the beginning. And, and that's the reason that we engaged with you, with you guys and, and you guys helped navigate through this. And, and we're very happy with the, the way things went. Everybody, I feel like everybody won in this situation. Um, the DSO, you know, got a great practice that, that is still continuing to grow. And uh, everybody on the sell side got what they wanted as well. So, you, you know, the representation allowed for the new leg of the journey to start without any hard feelings towards any, any side. You know, everybody went in happy. And that's going to be great for the practice. And it's very important to us that the practice still stayed as a, as a private practice and that the DSO that we brought in was going to support that practice, which is eventually led to us going the route, the route we did. Excellent points. And I mean, you, you, you were easier, I'll say to, to work with, um, well, throughout the entire process, but certainly in the inception, because so many of the conversations were collaborative. I mean, you weren't in a in a hurry. You weren't in a rush just to get to the finish line. You were really contemplative about, um, you know, what you wanted, why you wanted. It makes it easier for us to represent a client when there's clarity and all that, because we know what we're charging for and what we're Mm-hmm. Or what we're charging toward, I don't mean like from a financial standpoint, I mean, sure. like what we're, you know, the, the outcome that we're trying to achieve here. Um, and, and maybe more importantly, what what we're not, you know, what our client is not interested in. And, and sometimes people just get, I don't know, seduced, for lack of a better term, by the, the dollars at stake, and, and they kind of, kind of lose sight of the overall objective. So I mean, I could see that being very possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, some of that is is due to a um, uh, a lack of familiarity um, with the process at hand, the duration of it, the emotional roller coaster. I mean, justifiably. I mean, you you're not going to go through this process. Most people only go through this process once in their career. Some maybe once or twice, but you know, we live it on a more consistent basis. Certainly the DSOs, to your point earlier, do this tens of hundreds of times a year. And it's sort of old hat for them, but it's, it's different for those on the, uh, the selling side because they, they haven't been through this. So let's maybe talk a little bit about, you know, that, that process and managing expectations and even things like, you know, developing a pitch book to guide your expectations and expectations of the buyers and and all that. You want to maybe take a pass at some of that? Yeah. We know it initially when, when we engaged Polaris, you know, we, I had an idea of where EBITDA was 
you know, we had a dental accounting firm doing our uh, accounting bookkeeping and, and keeping track of EBITDA. So I, I had like a general idea of where EBITDA was, but I also understood that that EBITDA is going to change depending on who looks at it. And when we engaged Polaris, it was always a, you know, kind of an under promise over deliver. I feel, I feel that's, that's what's great way to, to go about things. We try to do that with our patients as well. Uh, but it was a lot of managing um, everyone's expectations and you know, EBITDA did come down a little bit, but it wasn't so drastic. And, you know, originally we had like a teaser. I think I remember a teaser was made. It's just like a one page kind of document that Polaris sent out, like a pictures and like, uh, it, was, it was like a postcard. Yep. And we were, we were involved in that and like, oh, this is really cool. You know, everyone can see on a high level overview, like, you know, this is a you know successful practice. It's quite large and this is what it's doing. And just so, you know, the, the buyer side knows this is coming to market. And I, I appreciated the, the way that it went to, to market. Um, it wasn't blasted out. You know, we get emails every day, practice for sale. You know, it was kind of handcrafted and uh, it was presented in a, in a, in a very nice way. Um, the pitch deck, and we can talk about that a little bit later, but, you know, when this pitch deck went, went out to everybody, um, it went out to certain groups of people, but that was based on the conversation that Polaris had with us. What is it that you, you all are looking for with a future partner slash exit? And then everything was tailored to that. So there was a lot of great communication uh, between Polaris and us, which, which helped keep things moving forward smoothly. Yeah, I, you, there's a... <clears throat> There's a phrase uh, in M&A called deal fatigue. And mm -hmm. what, that, what that essentially means is that, um, you know, deal uh, transactions, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, M&A transactions are complicated in nature. There are a million points to negotiate. There's positives and negatives, concessions and wins and all of that along the way. And, and, some of it, especially later in the the stage, um, get to get kind of wrapped up in some minutia, you know, mm -hmm. and and clients often reach a point of deal fatigue. It's the mindset of, gosh, this process is taking so long. Can't we just get to the end? You know, mm -hmm. it's easy to be excited in the, in the LOI phase when you, when you see like dollars oh, yeah. on paper and everything, you know, and, and but um, again, that devil in the details is worth taking the time to negotiate it. Sure. And later in the game, you're just, you're just wanting it to get done, like carrying the anxiety along. Let's just finish it, please. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that hits everybody at different phases. So, um, sure. let's, let's maybe talk just a little bit about that, um, pitch book for a second and, and you, uh, without again, disclosing any, uh, sure. specificity sure. or anything, but just maybe talk about the way you saw your business in that. And, um, you know, also, uh, the way it helped kind of manage some of that deal fatigue and, and expectations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, you know, Perrin, one thing I, 
Yeah, I wanted to mention that I didn't say earlier is that when when we were going through this process, like I had kind of envisioned like, okay, I'm going to go down this M&A journey. What, what, what is it that I would want help with, you know, selecting the, the correct attorney, like having somebody there along the journey that we could call when, you know, on a daily basis, if we needed to, and everything that, that I wanted out of, of representation, um, that happened. And, and that, that's what made the MNA journey fun for me. It's because I didn't feel that I was left out in the deep end of the pool. You know, I expected if I went down this route as a, you know, going direct to buyer myself, you know, I had, I had expectations that I would be in the deep end of the pool the whole time, but I was a guide. I was guided, you know, the whole step of the, the journey. We, we were given options for different attorneys in the space. You know, we were given communication about what was going to happen. And so that, that's very important because I felt that we had support rather than having to figure out and make decisions on our own. Um, so that's just one thing that I wanted to, to point out. But as far as the pitch book, uh, pitch book was really cool. So that, that was a, a, you know, a 15, like a 15 page PDF document that went out. And what I liked about it was a ton of words on it. There are a lot of <laughs> pictures and uh, you know, it was short and sweet to the point, you know, this is the practice. This is what uh, this team has done. Here's the financial overviews, um, you know, KPI statistics, but there were a couple of very unique things on the pitch deck, which uh, I really liked. And one of it was the uh, upside that the buyer has, you know, Polaris had done an extensive due diligence on the practice to get the, um, you know, the numbers and EBITDA and, and what, what, what's important about the practice from a financial standpoint. But then inside this, this pitch deck, you know, we, we had that on there as well. So the buyers would be able to see the upside and it's almost like, you know, kind of pointing out some of the faults, not not like not faults, but here's where the practice could use some more support. And, and that that's fantastic, you know, because it kept, it kept things transparent. Like, you know, this is what the business has done over the last year and some change. And here is where there's still room for growth. So it was nice seeing that on there. I'm sure all buyers are going to do their due diligence and come up with their own list. But that was pretty cool to have, uh, to see that. And and the second thing was the timeline. Um, There was a timeline from the start of the process to to basically close um, dates outline, which was really cool because that made sure everybody was staying, you know, honest on on the steps needed to be taken forward. That the buyers or the sellers don't don't drag their feet, and that everybody's moving towards this common goal. And because I think last year probably many many businesses were trying to get their deals done before the end of the year, so it was nice to see a timeline. Yeah, I, I think that um, those two points that you hit on the the buy side's upside um, and the the timeline involved um, do a lot to um, 
kind of work uh, to, to avoid maybe that deal fatigue aspect. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think it, to your point, it's, it's easier when you have milestones to hit dates, you know, to, to knock down that just keeps everybody uh, on pace and, and tries to limit some of the variance involved with it. And, and hopefully that brings about the culmination of, uh, of the process on time um, without too, too great a degree of uh, anxiety and without, um, you know, everybody rushing in the end uh, just to make a, a, a calendar-based deadline at that point. So um, uh, I'm glad to hear that both of those resonated with you and that, yeah, that you know it helped a, a good bit with it um let's talk uh and talk for a second you know uh, lois which is letter of intent for our audience when you hear loi it's letter of intent um and that due diligence process i mean that's that's kind of the part where those two pieces you know it the process becomes real at that point somebody is making sure. a a non-binding legal uh, uh, submission for, um, the way they would structure a, a transaction. And then if agreed upon, there is a, uh, a process of inspection, um, to corroborate everything and, and ultimately lead to, to the legal docs in the end to consummate the process. Those are pretty big lifts. Do you want to just tell the audience from your perspective, the way we kind of roll through all that? Sure. The uh, and and I think the LOI and due diligence, you know, became a lot less uh, anxious than than what it would sound like. It is because Polaris had also done due diligence on their own for our business prior to it, and many LOIs came in, you know, all from different type of entities, you know, and it was very interesting to see the LOIs on how how which areas that certain uh, entities were similar and, and where they differed. Um, but I think what we appreciated the most about the, the LOI process is, is that Polaris kind of knew what it is that we, we wanted, what we wanted for ourselves, what we wanted for the practice, and most importantly, what we wanted for the team. You know, the, the, the real team, the real reason that the practice succeeded was because of the team that's in place. And so it was very important to us that the new entity would not come in and, and dismantle the team or, or take apart, you know, the strengths or the reasons that that practice succeeded for the 30, you know, 30 years that uh, my, my partner was in there and, and almost like the 65 years that, that it's been there. So when the LOIs came in, we basically looked at the different structures, you know, some cash at close equity. Um, there were certain ones that were complete buyouts. Uh, and we, we found which ones were, were kind of tailored to what we wanted. Uh, and we saw it being best fit for the practice. Um, the valuations, they did differ, you know, a little bit, but then behind the scenes, it was nice. Polaris was going and, trying to dig in there. Um, and that was something that was really nice is that we didn't have to do this on our own. We had tons of conversations with Polaris. Like Devaker was going through all this with us. Why did the valuations differ? And what was the rollover equity 
how is that rollover equity being treated in the future? You know, when are there defined terms uh, as far as what's going to happen with the rollover equity at what points in time? And then, uh, then kind of getting like a revision, uh, if I may say, on the, on the LOIs. It's like, okay, here's the revised LOI now. And, and at the end of the day, parent, it was only like 15 grand that the LOI differed from, from where we started. And I think the reason that it was like that is be, just because of how extensive workup Polaris did for us on the front end. You know, I was getting anxious at times, like, guys, you know, like, is this supposed to take this long before we go to market? But all that research and all of that due diligence that Polaris did on the front end made the back end go a lot smoother and much more quicker. And there's no way that anything like this would have happened if I, you know, went represented myself or went direct to the buyer. Like, I think it would have been a nightmare, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, you know... I- I think that's a, a good point. And, and I'll just tell the audience that, you know, what Vivek's talking about here is that there are a lot of advisors that will take on a client. Um, they'll, you know, cut and paste some type of an EBITDA assessment, broadcast it to the market, rush it out there, um, and then <coughs> just deal with all the, uh, the variations and the pushback um, in the late stages of the process, because they feel like the client's not going to back out at that point, yeah. no matter how much bad news comes in, you know? Surprise and, it though. <laughs> yeah. So, so our philosophy is we probably do more analysis on the front end than arguably any other uh, sell side advisor in our, our marketplace. And it takes us maybe a little bit longer to do that, but we minimize surprises and hopefully minimize any variance uh, late stages when deal fatigue is at its highest and anxiety is running rampant. And if we can, it, it, I, I hate to put it this way, if we can, if we can deal with any bad news up front when we're all mm-hmm. of level head, it's easier to to work around it and understand how we're going to handle that. Versus when you get bad news late stage in a deal and there are a lot of dollars involved, um, that's when emotions are running highest and when you're least equipped to handle it. Um, sure. so a little bit of different philosophy on our end, but, you know, glad to see that, um, that, that you were a, a partner in the process and understanding of, of what we were trying to achieve for you and, and the why behind what we did it. So, um, yeah, it, it makes sense. You know, it, it's, uh, minimizing those surprises. It, it's, uh, I could see how in the, in the ninth inning come, come September, October, November, those surprises would would be really just an added layer of stress at that time, but it would the LOI you know phase we we just kind of moved through it. It really wasn't a hurdle, and I I think a lot of it was because of you know front end due diligence. So it was really nice to have. That's that's good. I I appreciate you saying that. That is that's our ultimate goal and what we're trying to achieve. And in, in you know spending the time and taking the effort earlier in the in the process versus just capitulation at the end to say, let's, I, I know it's a million dollar impact, but I just want to get the deal done. You know, that's, that's kind of a bad place to be in from a mindset standpoint. So mm-hmm. um, uh, really, really helpful. So, uh, you know, let's, uh, Vivek, let's talk a little bit um, in sort of concluding thought of our conversation today on 
life after a liquidity event for you, for the practice and your partner and, and everything like that. I mean, uh, you're still a, a, a young guy, obviously, with a good uh, outlook ahead of him and um, been a successful event for you, the, your partner, as well as the DSO, who we hold in high regard. How do you, how do you kind of think through where you are at this stage of life, uh, having been through the process and everything? You know, it's a lot of fun, Aaron. Uh, that the last uh, two years has just been a, a tremendous amount of fun, and has brought, you know, kind of. I am young. I feel like I'm talking like a sixty-year-old that's just retired <laughs> from the industry. But um, it, it's fun because I learned a lot more about um, how my clinical skills can help me grow practices and you know life after closing i feel like everything's just the same i'm still equally as involved with the dso right now and because the employment agreements because everything was transparent from the beginning because you know you guys helped us set up you know what we wanted and then you found the buyer that was in agreement with us, we really started the the next leg off this new partnership on on a correct foot. Um, EBITDA target EBITDA for last month was up twenty uh, percent, and so uh, I think that's just a uh, you know a great great thing to build off for the first leg of this partnership. Um, we have definitely goals and ambitions to continue to grow the practice. Um, as far as myself, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy with, uh, you know, the financial success that came from it, but I also feel that um, it's only made me a little bit more focused and ambitious about what can be accomplished. And I say this in the most like humble way possible. Um, it may not have taken 16 months to do that if we do it again. You know, when I look back at the journey I, I see areas where I made a ton of mistakes and those were mistakes were my best teachers being that first time business owner, but where could I have become more efficient and what things could be done the next time to make the process run a little bit smoother and, and faster and get the same desired results. So these are all things that I'm thinking about now. Um, but as far as, uh, you know, sitting on a beach somewhere and, uh, and just kind of relaxing. It's not really, that's not me. And, and so, um, I'm working just as hard now. Um, and it was just nice to have that. If you call it, you know, the liquidity event take place at the end of December, it, it led to a nice new year's. <laughs> I, I, I can only imagine, I can only imagine, but to, to know that the, the personal success, um, you know, equals the financial success at, at this stage is, um, yeah, let's be honest, we all pull for good guy, good people to do well in life. And I, I think you're the poster child for that. And, and DeWalker and I were privileged to know you before the process, get to know you better during the process and know you even better than that um, after the process. And um, we, we love it when good people win in the end. Um, and I'm just, I'm honored uh, to have been a small part of your journey up to this stage and really can't wait to, to see what you've got, um, in, in the years to come. So, um, 
suffice, suffice to say, Vivek, uh, the fact that you're um, continuing to work hard is the reason that you got up early on a Sunday morning to <laughs> record this <laughs> podcast with me. And I know our audience is better for that. So thank you so very much for joining us of on course. the show today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for letting me share the story. But, you know, thank you all for the the whole representation. It wasn't just transactional. You know, we had support the entire way from where we were at in May until December. And um, we're very pleased with how everything went for the practice with the transition. It went smooth. And uh, if we were to do another deal in the future, I would not recommend anybody doing it without representation. You know, it's just like Shark Tank. You, You don't know what you don't know. It's like no dentist would ever go and do an all on four surgery after just taking out a couple of teeth, you know? And so don't go navigating in the M&A space without, without experience, because those minor details can make the difference in the next three to five years of your life. Um, And it's really important that everybody is set up so that these, these deals are successful and everybody wins in the future. Very, very well said. You're um, you're quite a gentleman to uh, to share to share your entire story with our audience. Um, and uh, I, I have a feeling this won't be the last time they hear from you. But um, suffice to say, um, we are all incredibly appreciative of uh, of you joining us on on the show. So thanks for your your time, your effort, your partnership, and your trust uh, in, in doing that. Of course, thank you. For the rest of our audience, if you do have questions or comments or uh, anything uh, you're curious about, feel free to reach out to me directly at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. You can certainly learn more about us on our website at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. And if you've got any other compliments or ratings, please feel free to re- uh, leave them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you do submit a question, you never know, and I might answer it on an upcoming show. Thanks so much for being a listener and a subscriber. We'll see you on the next episode.